The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. This particular theme, this particular subject, does draw an incredibly wide interest, and there are lots of uh, people who are concerned with the question of justice, but they're coming at it from very different perspectives. In my experience, Thus far, in talking about this subject and writing on the subject, as Randy so uh, well described it, is that nobody really wants to be against justice. I mean, who would want to say as a Christian, I don't, I don't believe in justice. No, I'm not for justice. I'm not for social justice. So fe- people feel compelled when they're told what justice is that they ought to be supportive of it. They ought to be behind it. It should be something that their church and their organization and they themselves are invested in. And I would agree that we should all be concerned with justice because Scripture is. I want to read to you a few verses just from the book of Deuteronomy, from uh, the book that Jesus quoted most from. Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verses 18 through 20 says this, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns, that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, what I want to do in the first session is talk about the issue of justice and the kingdom of God and the church. And in the second session, Dr. Masson is going to talk about the social order and the culture as we're experiencing it on the issue of uh, social justice. The reason that I want to kick off by talking about the church and the kingdom of God is that in terms of this idea, this doctrine, the way in which it's come into the church is through a discipline with which I'm familiar called missiology, the theology of mission. And when you hear as a Christian uh, in the churches or in Christian leadership uh, or in the seminary about social justice, you invariably hear about it, not in terms of uh, the exterior culture that we face today. For the most part, it does, sometimes it's framed in those terms, but for the most part, it comes in, I would say, as a Trojan horse, looking like an angel of light, in terms of the kingdom of God and the mission of God. That's how the issue of social justice is presented to us. So I want to address uh, this primarily in my session this morning. Now, let's think for a moment first about the term evangelism, in terms of the mission of the church. The word evangelism, you all know, comes from the word evangel, which means good news. Gospel, the English word gospel, literally means good news. And in the synoptic gospels, very importantly, that good news is called the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4, 23, that terminology is scattered liberally throughout the synoptic gospels. The gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom. This is a very, very important fact. The doctrine of the kingdom is central to a biblical understanding, actually, of the good news. And of course, as we've said before at these sessions, a kingdom requires some fairly straightforward things. A king, you can't have a kingdom without a king. You need a domain that is a, uh, a kingdom to rule. And the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God, this announcement of the kingdom of God, it's come near in the person of Jesus Christ and that we are declaring the reign of God that has broken into the world in unique fashion through, uh, if you will, the incursion of the ministry of the incarnate son into history. Now, Jesus' earthly ministry demonstrated that the good news wasn't just an abstract piece of information. Otherwise, he could have sent us an email. 
or, or just written us a letter, or he didn't, wouldn't have needed to have been incarnate into the world. So the gospel of the kingdom isn't an abstraction where we simply accept a few propositions as true. It is something that is embodied in the concrete realm. And so the kingdom coming near meant forgiveness of sins in the life of Jesus' ministry. It meant the healing of the sick. It meant freeing the demon-possessed. It meant teaching the young. It meant care and concern for the materially and physically poor, the oppressed, the outcast, the widow, the orphan. It meant even the breaking down of social barriers between Jew and Gentile. The wall of partition, Ephesians 2 telling us, being shattered, that it separated these peoples. And so the good news of the kingdom of God, about the reign of a merciful God, was a declaration, really, of victory over the world, of over sin and evil and injustice. This was a new hope. So Jesus could tell us in John 16, 33, take courage, I've overcome the world. So if you're beaten down by sin and suffering and trial and tribulation and all these things, fear not, the kingdom of God is here. It's good news. Notice, though, that it wasn't simply a declaration that you can go to heaven. It wasn't just a future hope, but a present reality. It was eschatological. The kingdom of God, theologians would say, missiologists would say, is eschatological. It's about the purpose of all of history. Now, biblical categories do distinguish, but they don't separate artificially the physical and the spiritual, the inner and the outer life. So that Christ's rule extends over every aspect of life, and that means the Christian faith is comprehensive. It, It isn't just something for my spiritual life, my personal devotional life, uh, my personal piety and going to heaven. Christ's rule is over everything and cannot be confined to inner piety. It embraces all existence. And so Jesus tells us that he has come in John 10, verse 10, that we might have life and life in all its fullness. Total life of the whole person. Salvation, salve, literally means wholeness. This being the case, we should expect that our evangelistic efforts in declaring and living the good news will affect the social and moral character of individuals, of families, of societies, and of nations, hence a visible expression of the kingdom of God. In other words, there was an expectation that if people repent and come to Christ, there's going to be a change. It's not just that they've accepted new beliefs as true. There's going to be a transforming power That follows from the good news. And so when we think about evangelism in terms of the kingdom of God, the gospel in terms of the kingdom of God, we see it connected to God's purpose for history, which ultimately is a renewed earth and a new heavens, transformed. And that's the narrative of God's activity this inauguration of the kingdom of God, which is now within reach of those who repent and believe the gospel. Now, that has meant, if that's a statement of evangelical faith, although I do think the aspect of the kingdom of God has been neglected, and I have to say at this point that uh, to be fair to those who have pressed and pushed the issue, issue of social justice and the kingdom of God, in many respects it has been a reaction to the neglect of the doctrine of the kingdom of God in fundamentalist evangelical pietism in North America in particular that has overlooked many of the concrete specific applications of the kingdom of God for life. I'm going to talk about that. But in reform thought specifically, Christ's universal providential government and cosmos renewing intentions are central to the kingdom of God. So we have to repudiate continuously this dualistic notion that our purpose as Christians is to get to heaven rather than thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because in fact, the kingdom of God, the heavenly city comes down out of heaven into the earth in the eschaton. And that emphasis is an important one. 
Evangelism is not just about saving souls. Our purpose as God's people, as the church and as the organic church, as well as the institutional church, is not simply about soul saving, as though people are disembodied creatures who just have an eternal, immortal, Greek-type concept of the soul that needs to reach its final destination, the body in the earth is a prison. If that were true, Jesus need not have been incarnate in the flesh, the physical resurrection of Christ would not have been necessary, and the preaching of the kingdom of God would not really have been relevant. It would have just been about heaven. Now, the all-encompassing nature of this kingdom means that it is come in Christ, it has come, and it will come. And the kingdom of God leaves nothing out. One missiologist with whom I disagree profoundly on most things, David Bosch, one of the godfathers of contemporary missiology, is at least correct in pointing out that for the early church, and I quote, the idea of religion as a private affair of divorcing the spiritual from the physical was an unthinkable attitude in light of the all-embracing nature of God's reign ushered in by Jesus Christ. So the tendency that the evangelical church has had to reduce the gospel to fire insurance marketing, uh, the best kind of insurance, does have to be challenged. And it impoverishes our ability to understand and capture a vision of this messianic kingdom. Johann Verkuhl puts it this way, and I think helpfully. He says, quote, God's goal in his mission is his messianic kingdom. The kingdom does not only address the spiritual and moral needs of a person, but his material, physical, social, cultural, and political needs as well. For this reason, Jesus came not only as one who preached, but also as one who served, the akonos. He made the signs of the kingdom appear. The blind saw, the crippled walk, lepers were healed, the hungry had food to eat, the lonely discovered they were no longer alone. In other words, the gospel embraces love to God, the first commandment, and Jesus says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law, and this is what proves our faith genuine. Now, that is not to say that we can jettison or minimize the proclamation of the atoning work of Christ, uh, the call to repentance and faith, and replace it by the idea that well, if we alleviate certain uh, basic physical or temporal needs, we've done our job of heralding the reign of Christ. We haven't. There's a verbal, inescapably verbal dimension to the declaration of the gospel that has to be present, central to the church's witness. The invitation to obey the gospel of God, actually the command to obey the gospel of God. And it's only when that happens that there is a declaration of that good news with clear actions. Perhaps the best example in the New Testament would be the story of Zacchaeus. You'll remember that uh, Jesus is passing along the road. Zacchaeus, this little man, as you remember from Sunday school, uh, climbs up a tree. And Jesus says, well, I'm coming to your house. And the Pharisees are scandalized because this, this is a public, this is a tax collector, a sinner, somebody despised by the Jewish people. And the kingdom of God is declared to Zacchaeus. And what is Zacchaeus' response? He says, well, if I have robbed or defrauded anyone, I am going to restore. Is it fourfold? Fourfold. Actually, he only was required in, in biblical law. Double restitution is required for theft of, uh, in his case. Sometimes if it was a particular working animal, it would be more. But he offers fourfold restitution. And Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. Because there was an activity that followed the recognition of the truth of the gospel. So every stratum of society needs reconciliation with God. Eternity is not defined by temporal concerns. Rather, it establishes and defines the significance of time. So we have to hold, as Christians in dynamic tension, the proclamation about the core aspects of the New Testament gospel witness about Christ his salvation, his atonement, with the living out, the demonstration of the good news in love to God and our neighbor 
as Scripture requires. And these are interwoven, inseparable aspects of the church's task in the world. That is the task of God's people. So when we strive for justice in the political sphere, when we fight for the rights of the unborn or the enslaved or the falsely accused or we give aid to the needy, they are distinguishable in principle from proclaiming the redemption of Christ at the cross. But they can't be artificially separated as though they have nothing to do with each other. As though we can say, well, that's this over here. And then on totally different premises, we can do other good stuff. We can be do-gooders over here. No. The gospel of the kingdom, which has a king and a scepter and a law, encompasses all of those things. And they are required of us as God's people. In the same way that faith without works is dead, so deeds without words are empty. And if we never declare the gospel, nobody knows the purpose of our action. What does it mean then? Uh, Does this mean that deed and word have to come together mechanically? So if I'm preaching the gospel, I have to give somebody a glass of water as well. Or uh, if I'm uh, giving food to the hungry, I, I have to always tell them about Jesus at the same time as though there's some sort of mechanical requirement here. No, that's not what's being said. But scripture does tell us that these things have to be seen holistically. We do both in the name of Christ. It's about naming the name. That when you do it to the least of these, my brothers, you do it to me. The preaching then of the gospel of righteousness cannot be divorced from the practice of justice and righteousness. That's what we're saying. The preaching of a gospel of righteousness cannot be divorced from the practice of justice and righteousness. So we are to continue in the footsteps of the Lord, who's the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, heralding this comprehensive kingdom and enlisting others to join in the community which is reigning with him. The question is, what does it look like? I think most of us, even if some of what I've just said is new to us or has not been an emphasis that we have recognized. The question is, what does it look like? I wanted to start with that statement, lest it be suggested that we are against justice and mercy and compassion. Nothing could be further from the truth. Scripture, the word of God, the Christian confession cannot possibly be against justice, mercy, compassion, kindness. This is what the kingdom of God is about. It's manifest in all of these ways. Now, the church of Jesus Christ is a justified people. We are the righteous. That's what Scripture says. We are the just. We've been made just in Jesus Christ. And therefore, the actual church itself in Scripture is, is in a sense, a part of the announcement of the kingdom of God because the announcement of the gospel is that you can be included in this community. You can become part of God's kingdom. You can be included in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be part of his body, the church. And the goal then in establishing the messianic kingdom of justice unveiled in Christ to the world and his church means that the life of God's church and the kingdom of God, again, cannot be artificially separated. They're not identical. The institutional church is not identical with the kingdom of God. So you cannot say, well, there's the Pentecostal church, there's the Baptist church, there's the Presbyterian church, thus there is the, or whatever else, thus there is the kingdom of God. No, the kingdom of God is wherever his rule and reign is. And that's in our families. It's in our workplaces. It's in our organizations and institutions, in our Christian schools. And so wherever Christ is reigning, there his kingdom is. But his church, his kingdom people, is meant to be a manifestation of the new humanity in Jesus Christ with a deep concern for public justice. Scripture says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So anything that is opposed to Christ must be brought into subjection to him. And as John Stott notes, and I quote, the church is meant to be the kingdom community, a model of what the human community looks like when it comes under the rule of God and a challenging alternative to secular society, end quote. 
Now, this vision of God's mission has historically been recognized by large segments of the evangelical church. But something did happen in the last century. It was building before then, but it came to full expression in the last century. We had the rise of various strands of liberalism and, in some cases, various types of millennialism that began to undermine the unity of proclaiming and embodying the gospel of the kingdom justification and justice together, whether it was in the political, educational, charitable, social sphere. There began to be a progressive, since the Puritan age actually, separation of these things. And this process has been called by the historian Timothy L. Smith, the Great Reversal. And it marked something of a change in the attitude of evangelicals towards the gospel as it relates to the social order. The first of these factors, again identified by John Stott, the first factor in this great reversal was what he calls the blossoming of theological liberalism in the early 20th century, which began to deny the historical evangelical faith. It denied the orthodox tenets of the faith, and yet it was marked by its alleged concern for social action or social justice. The underlying theodrama of liberalism posited a direct identification of the kingdom of God with the humanization of the world. So if you just humanize the world, you don't need Christ, you don't need God, you don't need the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you don't need the scriptures. You humanize the world. That is the kingdom of God. That was theological liberalism. This was utopian. This was understandably intolerable to evangelicals who reacted by defending the fundamentals of the faith. People like B.B. Warfield. And those fundamentals were good. They they simply reaffirmed fundamental convictions of evangelical faith. That's where we get the term fundamentalism. It was a reaffirmation of some basic fundamentals. But this gradually became a de-emphasis on the kingdom of God as it relates to the social sphere which in the 18th and 19th century had been so influential under the likes of the Clapham sect in England. So you're all familiar with William Wilberforce, the abolition of the slave trade and the reformation of manners by which he meant a return to biblical law in England. And this was central to evangelicalism. It was core to evangelicalism on both sides of the Atlantic. This is what was believed about the kingdom of God. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney later in America. This was a high priority for them. So that was the first shift. The second shift was what Stott says was the parallel development of what has been dubbed the social gospel. I'm sure you've heard of that. This was simply a way of interpreting salvation as the regeneration of human relationships. It was Christianized communism, the social gospel. And it was synonymous with this doctrine of the humanization of society. And again, this is how Stott puts it concerning the kingdom. He says, without a new birth, it is impossible to see it, let alone enter it. Those who do receive it like a child, however, find themselves members of the new community of the Messiah, which is called to exhibit the ideas of his rule in the world and so to present the world with an alternative social reality. This social challenge of the gospel of the kingdom is quite different from the social gospel. But the two got so confuted that evangelicals who were concerned for the truth about Christ's atonement, justification, and the core issues that have to be defended, because of the association of the engagement with the social sphere with liberalism, it began to be, uh, first of all, de-emphasized and then practically jettisoned altogether. The third observation Stott notes, which may tread on a few toes here, was he says the spread of dispensational eschatological themes, which rejected the Puritan and former evangelical emphasis uh, of a Christian eschatology, and it was propagated by J.N. Darby and the Schofield Bible in particular here, that presented the world as really beyond any sort of redemption. It was sinking into darkness until the coming of Christ and his literal reign on the earth. And in many cases, this did lead to a withdrawal from social engagement. So those are the three things that John Stott says have been core to the great reversal. 
Now, if we're going to be fair to the social justice advocates, some of them have been reacting to this withdrawal. The younger generation in particular in the church today have been in reaction to what they perceive to be a, a, an otherworldly ticket to heaven Christianity that says, well, believe these propositions and you're going there and that's fine. And with an ignoring of the pressing problems of our culture and our social order. And they've rightly identified that as a problem. The difficulty and the problem has arisen is that the answers that have been given to them of what justice is and means are not biblical. And the responsibility of the church is to provide a biblical doctrine of the kingdom and a biblical understanding of justice so that we can pursue this aspect of our calling faithfully but biblically. If evangelism can be defined as the proclamation and manifestation of the kingdom of God in word and deed, then these two fruits of the kingdom then have to come together. And interestingly, the actual proclamation of the evangel is then an act of justice in itself. For what does the call to repentance and faith mean if not justice for God, giving God what he's due? Those people will then seek, as Augustine put it, the right order of love, loving their neighbor as much as they love themselves. The challenge, the difficulty, is that having recognized the problem, nobody seems to define justice. You read the guys in the seminaries, or you, you read these articles, you hear it talked about in the church, the importance of justice, social justice, justice this, justice that. And yet justice goes undefined. And it's rarely addressed in the field. Social justice has become uh, an incredibly popular topic uh, of conversation among students. It's popular throughout the churches. And we're told that we need to do justice. There are constantly conferences on doing justice. And they're marketed to young people. And we're told that structures of injustice must be addressed. Uh, and so on. And these presuppose, obviously, a standard of justice. But what is it? This is the question. What is justice? Obviously, justice has to rest on some criterion or another. And yet, for many Christian intellectuals in the field writing on the subject, they are open antinomians in that they, t they tell us uh, in a series of essays called Rough Justice dealing with supposedly the Bible and justice, it says, they say the Bible cannot tell us what justice is or how we can exercise it. So if you start the project of social justice by saying the Bible cannot tell us what justice is or how we can exercise it, well, you're hardly going to end up with a biblical conclusion. And this means, of course, that something other than the word of God is defining justice for these people. But in biblical faith, law and justice are inseparable. In society, when law doesn't express justice, it no longer commands respect or obedience. And this is the problem we're facing now in our society. Society left without justice is, as Randy pointed out, suicidal. For scripture, then, justice is quite literally a matter of life and death for any society. And the social, if you will, disaster of our age, I think, is that... Governments have abandoned true justice because they've separated law and justice. In fact, many jurists today will tell you that law and justice have nothing to do with morality, let alone religion. Law and justice are simply social policy. It's got nothing to do with morality. In this view, law and our approximation of justice is what the state enacts. So if the state enacts it, it's justice. If you uh, were listening closely to Kathleen Wynne's acceptance speech, uh, the essential view is that the people have spoken with respect to justice, inclusivism, inclusion. This is a just society. The modern state has conflated its own positivistic law and the idea of justice, rendering justice just an aspect of the state. And that means that there is no longer a law 
or virtue basic to society that is an aspect of a fundamental order above us. This is why when you, and my, my experience of this and Scott's in the media, is that it's very difficult to address these subjects because people don't think about them in terms of anything that transcends the immediacy of social policy for any given government. Appealing to something transcendent as a benchmark of morality, of truth, of justice, is seen as unacceptable. This contemporary view means then that justice is at best social policy, so justice is what the state does, which is a complete departure from the Christian view. So justice has to be grounded in either God or human beings as our ultimate referent. Consequently, when we attempt to define justice apart from God's law, we, lead, we are led quickly into rationalizations and relativism with no connection to true justice whatsoever. So what is justice for the Christian? Justice is something that is revealed by God. That's intrinsic to his character and nature. It's something that is disclosed. And this revelation is found in distorted form in the human conscience and in human traditions, but with clarity in God's word and manifests supremely in the person of Jesus Christ, the truly just man, the only truly just person to walk the face of the earth. He's the model man who fulfilled the law and the prophets and obeyed it completely. Consequently, our concern for justice has to be pursued from a Christian standpoint, and only if this is done is God's righteousness being manifest in our gospel. So if we've linked gospel and doing justice, the kingdom and doing justice, we have to link it to the laws of the kingdom. Otherwise, it isn't manifesting the righteousness of God at all. It's manifesting something completely different, some foreign idea, some alien concept. And this struggle takes many forms, inevitably, in our society. Some personal, some familial, some societal, and they involve engagement with the polis, the city, state, the structures and the people around us. We want to see unjust laws and statutes and judgments that oppress and abuse and propagate injustice revoked and replaced with righteous laws and judgment. You can only get that when you have a righteous people. People are the ones who demand righteous laws. So the church has to define the source of law and justice. And I'm, I'm, I keep restating this because it is so obvious a point, but it is perpetually overlooked and ignored. As though we can just speak about justice as though it is content-free, as though it can be vested with any particular kind of content that the social order or the cultural moment says is appropriate. The reform thinker Greg Barnson puts the challenge, I think, effectively before us when he says, and I quote, as the early church formulated its creeds, it simultaneously reformulated civil law. Such a correlation was inevitable since against the ancient pagan tradition that located the source of authority and morality in the polis, that's the city-state, Orthodox Christian creedalism asserted the sovereignty of the creator over history and the incursion of the messianic God-man into history. Thus, the early creeds were a declaration concerning not only theology proper, but eschatology and ethics. The course of history and the source of ethical authority were both found in the ontological trinity. What he's saying is that as we stated and formulated our creedal statements on the doctrine of God and of Christ and of the church, we simultaneously were reformulating civil law. Because no longer is the will of the state or the will of the Senate the ultimate source of law as it was in the pagan world. This is a critical observation. The early church's vision of justice or public justice brought them into conflict with the status establishment of the day because they proclaimed the lordship of the messianic king over everything else. And they rested their idea of justice on the Christian creed. They couldn't possibly rest it on the Roman concept of justice, which was no justice for the Christian. Another way of speaking then about social or public justice is social order. 
And of necessity, every social order is based on a social theory. So you're not living in a neutral culture. You're not living in a neutral social order. There can be no such thing as a neutral social order. Every social theory, Christian or not, has a creedal basis. So what we're seeing today, Randy mentioned some of the developments in our culture. They have a creedal foundation. There are a set of beliefs. There's a worldview that undergirds those ideas. And behind every religious creedal perspective, be it humanistic, Islamic, Christian, is a God, whether incarnated by the state or Jesus Christ as Lord. So the foundation of social order is sovereignty. A doctrine of sovereignty undergirds every social order. It was Michael Ignatieff, former leader of the Liberal Party, who recently stated the very much, very effectively, the Canadian doctrine of sovereignty. He said the state is the source of ultimate allegiance and the source of law. He said it's a sovereign that is the source of ultimate allegiance and the source of law. That's the pagan concept of the state, of justice. Which means the state will update what it means by justice year by year in terms of the present social contract. So basically, we have two conflicting concepts, the sovereignty of God and his word and the claimed sovereignty of the state. And this is critical because the ground on which we stand for justice and pursue justice and the motives behind which we strive for it, the end towards which we struggle, will only be congruent with the gospel if it's in terms of the word of God. So let's quickly highlight what the biblical meaning of the word justice actually is. Justice and righteousness in the Bible are coextensive terms. They mean the same thing. Justice and righteousness are interchangeable, and they come together most often even in the same verse. They are related terms because justice is an aspect of God's righteous character. They're totally interrelated. In the Old Testament, a just person is simply a righteous person who does what's right in terms of God's revealed word. That's what a just person is. Likewise, in the New Testament, the Greek word dikosyne can be legitimately translated righteousness or justice, which means you could translate Matthew 5, 6 as referring to the blessed who hunger and thirst after justice. Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness or justice. Equally, Matthew 6.33 uses the same word, exhorts us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or justice. Same word. The word then has a vertical, that's God-oriented, and horizontal, people-oriented dimension because it's tied to the law of God. In the Hebrew language, the term for justice, mishpat, is found more than 200 times in the Old Testament, and its central meaning is the rule of law. You shall have the same rule, Leviticus 24, 22, you shall have the same rule, mishpat, for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. That's the foundation of Western liberty, by the way, right there. The rule of law, one law for all people. That's justice. Ours is the only system that ever gave that to the world. There is one rule. Justice here requires impartiality and due restitution, irrespective of race, social status, creed. Justice is to give people their due, be that punishment or protection or care. That's the essence of justice. And even our English word justice carries that same connotation of uprightness. It comes from the Latin justice, which means literally to be upright. Now, this is not a contradiction completely from what the ancient world thought about justice. Aristotle spoke about justice in terms of universal justice and the ideas of virtue, charity, and morality, and particular justice. And uh, whilst we wouldn't vest the same meaning as Aristotle would into these terms, uh, his categorization is helpful for the sake of discussion He talks about commercial justice, which concerns economic exchange, which the Bible is concerned with, remedial justice, which is concerned with criminal and civil law, and distributive justice, which is concerned with apportioning goods and burdens amongst human beings. Now, for Scripture, God, which deals with all of those subjects, God alone defines what those are. I don't want to get into one of my... uh, 
particular topics of interest, that of crime and punishment, and digress too far. But how do you know what justice is in the area of crime without the word of God? What's the difference between crime and punishment anyway? What a given social order says it is? Should a thief have his hands cut off? Should he be executed? Or should he make restitution, as the Bible says? You see, depending on what your source of sovereignty is and your source of law will determine how you think theft should be dealt with. And if it's not in terms of the revealed word of God, it's arbitrary. So here what we're doing is we're applying apologetics right now into the area of justice. Christian apologetics. We talk about the necessity for God and his word and his law for there to be a right understanding of knowledge and morality, but we don't carry it far enough. We don't take it into the realm of morality and justice. We stop short of this. And we say, well, whatever the state says is fine by me. In the Bible, God defines these things, righteousness, mercy, and love, and he deals with all of these questions, remedial justice, economic exchange, charity, and so forth. And this means that scripture addresses the contemporary problems in the West, such as violence, including the pandemic of sexual violence in pornography, exploitation through kidnapping and enslavement, poverty, the collapse of criminal justice, fatherlessness, the destruction of the family, welfare orphans and widows, rampant moral degeneracy, murder of the unborn, legalization and normalization of homoeroticism and prostitution, physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, and the list goes on. The Bible speaks to all of these things. Some of you look shocked. In spite of this, when people, when many Christians talk about the struggle for justice, they almost always have one thing in mind. Distributive justice. They, they don't talk so much about these other things. What they primarily have in mind, and what the academics seem to have in mind, is distributive justice, which they call social justice. And this really means equalization. Ronald Nash points out, and I quote, social justice is viewed as that species of distributive justice concerned with the distribution of burdens and benefits in society as a whole, a distribution that is usually controlled by political authorities, end quote. Now, as Scott's going to show us this afternoon, it goes well beyond this. But this is the starting point at which social justice is usually spoken about today. And there are movements within the church, kind of new monastic movements that think that basically if you've got wealth, you're a sinner. Uh, um, and uh, we really ought to be all living simply, as simply as possible, one-bedroom houses. And, and basically, if you can live the closest to a monk as you possibly can, that's righteousness, Now, this concept of social justice has little relationship to biblical justice. Social justice is seen by many people today as democracy, the essence of democracy. Demos. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Now, I've said it before here probably, I'll say it again. Christians do not believe ideologically in the doctrine of democracy as an ultimate. It may be the best of a bad lot of choices, as Winston Churchill says, for governing a society, but we don't believe that just because a group of people, maybe the majority, say something is true or right, that's the voice of God and it's true and right. That's why we challenge our culture in terms of the word of God. That's not to say we don't believe in proportional representation. We do. We invented it, don't forget. The Bible invents it. Rule by elders, by families. That's what the judges in early republic was all about. We developed the idea. That's why it developed in the Christian West. But the idea today of democracy is supposedly the idea of the total equalization of everything, the leveling of everything. And this involves victimization. And that victimization is the connection of social justice with social guilt. If justice is something that is social, that is, there are classes particular groups of people that are guilty. And to realize social justice, we have to get them. And we have to turn things around and rectify this structure of injustice. And that requires creating victims, blaming the bad environment, various groups or classes for systemic injustice and inequality, 
because of these unjust social political structures perpetuated by the powerful and the oppressive. And in this mix, everybody has the inalienable right, as a matter of justice, we're told, to an equal access to land and resources and education and opportunity for betterment, marriage, sex, a good job, adequate income, as well as various social services, and increasingly a right to positive outcomes in all of those endeavors. And that that is justice. And that utopian ideal is what politics is meant to deliver. This, of course, doesn't define justice. It just gives you a list of entitlements. Nothing's been said there about what justice actually means. It's just a list of what people say everybody should have. It must be asked, whatever the merits, for example, of universal education or social services, what this has to do with being just and giving a person what is morally due them. Where does the Bible say that everybody's due a university education as a matter of justice? I mean, that's a really good question. The state only got involved in education at the end of the 19th century. Now, don't go away and say Joe Boots against education. I'm not against education. I'm just saying it isn't a matter of justice that everybody has an equal education. Since people aren't equal, you cannot provide everybody with equal outcomes to their education. Social theory and the Bible's material authority are thus critical issues here because Christian thinkers calling for social justice ignore Scripture. And when they do quote Scripture, they totally misuse it for the most part. So, for example, take this passage. Uh, Nash observes concerning a typical misuse here. Some of these verses, he says, that talk about justice in the Bible, refer not to distributive justice but to remedial justice. This is clearly true in the case of Exodus 23.6, which warns against depriving the poor man of justice, but makes it obvious that the justice in view is that found in a court of law. So when it talks about not depriving the poor man of justice, it's not saying take from the guy who's got more and give it to him. It's saying in the court, you cannot privilege the rich man or the poor man. You cannot show partiality. That's why, by the way, our statues of justice, our sculptures of Lady Justice, she's wearing a blindfold. Because she's supposed to be blind to the environmental issues and impartiality, exact justice is what justice requires. And that's why I read to you Deuteronomy 16, 19, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, you should not accept a bribe. Justice and justice only you shall do. God then clearly requires an obedience to his standard of justice. We cannot show partiality to the rich nor to the poor. Bribes are an attempt to pervert justice. And if you want to see a corrupt perversion of justice, you don't have to look much further than Ontario right now, do you? God requires the rule of his law, not our emotions and personal preferences to govern us. So, wrapping this up in the next 10 minutes. With some warrant, we have in the churches today a vision of justice that could be perceived as a social theory that is really modernism or Marxist liberation theology smuggled into the church, indebted to the social gospel. One Puritan commentator a contemporary Puritan commentator has put it this way. Modernism's characteristic message is the social gospel and social action. Modernism is the statist theology of contemporary man. Its gospel is that the state has an answer to all man's problems. Whether it be a burden of body or soul, poverty, cultural deprivation, mental health, disease, ignorance, family problems, and all things else, the state has a program and a plan of salvation. And we see this expressed, perhaps most uh, poignantly today, in what we call the emergent church movement, in their utopian visions. Most, and they've drunk deeply, by the way, from contemporary missiology, but they're just not as intelligent as their 19th century forebears in the social gospel. 
Dave Dewart, for example, former professor at Regent College, in seeking biblical warrant for statism to uh, coerce the redistribution of wealth, argues this. He says that charity is a byproduct of injustice and should be abolished by the government. Let me read to you what Dave Dewart, this is a professing evangelical, says about the issue of justice. And I quote, Justice is not the same thing as charity. Charity can be practiced while structures of inequality are maintained. In fact, charity is dependent on such inequality for its very existence. Charity is a way to manage social problems without the necessary commitment or strategy to eradicate them. It does not address the social, political, and economic structures of inequality and exclusion that keep them, that's people, in that state of deprivation. Justice is precisely about, listen closely, political and economic arrangements of power that ensure access to material and social resources for all members of the society. To live, justice, to live justly is to engage in the work necessary, necessary to establish and maintain just social, political, and economic arrangements. Political leaders and those with economic and social power must consider the lives of the needy And it is the people who must press, provoke, challenge, and impel them to ensure that this kind of justice is actualized. Now, that is iron-fisted Marxism. Cultural Marxism, but Marxism nonetheless. It is structures of inequality that social and political rearrangements will solve and you abolish that way charity, which he says is an expression of injustice, which is contrary to God's word. Dywert's uh, 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 message appears to set up a radical and unbiblical dichotomy between charity or love and doing justice, so that charity is not part of a righteous order, and thus love, by implication, is not the fulfilling of the law, which Paul says it is in Romans 13.10 which includes, by the way, the requirement of generous charitable giving. God's law requires that. Free giving. Statists invariably dislike charity because it produces a rival form of government to the state. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say one of you here fell on hard times. We're all friends. We live in a community. And you lost your job. And it became known that you'd lost your job, so we said, let's have a whip round and... Let's give to this family for the next six months while he finds a new job, pay their mortgage, cover their costs. Who is that person going to be grateful to? They're going to be grateful to the community, that government that provided them with that support. This is one of the ways the Christian church spread. It's one of the ways the gospel spread. The Soviet Union could not tolerate charity. It made it illegal because it recognized charity as a revolutionary activity because it creates a rival form of government. And allegiance, then, of the recipient of charity is built to that group, those people, those individuals, that family that has helped them. It's personal. It's not impersonal. Statists don't like this. They believe social problems can be dealt with with the right political structures with the people impelling governments to enforce them. Well, how's that working out for us? We're broke. Europe's broke. North America's broke. Individual and familial sin, personal irresponsibility, and the realities of a fallen world don't play any part in Dewart's utopian thinking. Instead, all social problems are due to man's environment, and his salvation will come when the state transforms the human environment by social planning. That's how man will be saved, by statute law. The logical implications of this is that charity becomes participation in sin because it reinforces the inequalities that exist in a society. Do you see that? So you have a reversal of the moral order. Charity becomes participation in sin. You're a sinner if you exercise charity because you are reinforcing structures of inequality. Because the only solution here is total communism. You enforce equality. The non-biblical idea of equalization becomes the normative principle rather than a biblical concept of rendering all their due 
the rule of law with kindness and charity as an important aspect of God's righteous law. So Dywert sees coercive redistribution as a requirement of the kingdom of God, he says. He says that's what the kingdom of God is. Do you know, in heaven we're not going to be equal. The Bible says nothing about the kingdom of God being a place of egalitarian humanism. It says that some will have a certain reward. Jesus, in his parables of the kingdom of God, speaks about different rewards for different people. Some, the Bible says, will enter the kingdom as if by fire, with their works burnt up, with a loss of reward. None of us in this room are equal in any aspect of our being. That's the beauty of life, isn't it? Dewart's iron-fisted state coercion then becomes an expression of the kingdom of God. One social commentator contends, and I quote that in response, the goal of politics today is messianic. Its purpose is paradise regained, a perfect world order by means of law and technology. Man's problem is not seen as sin, but as a backward environment. Statist theology sees all problems answered by statist action. The goal of all men of goodwill, therefore, must be social legislation. So if you really believe in justice, they say, you should be for all this social legislation to transform the environment. Now, I'm not suggesting that none of these people have noble motives or good intentions. I'm sure many of them have good intentions. They're just catastrophically wrong. This is the myth that modern revolutionaries believe, and revolutionaries have always believed, in the name of liberation. And don't forget, liberation is not liberty. Because in order for this liberation to take place, everybody's liberty has to be taken away. And it finishes with a police state. The bottom line is your good intentions or mine cannot replace God's law. You may be a bleeding heart, compassionate individual. And God bless you for that if you have compassion. We should have compassion. Paul says, my first responsibility, though, is he who does not take care of his own, especially of his own house, has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. St. Paul says that. And if a man does not work, he shouldn't eat. And when was the last time you heard a couple of sermons on that subject? Wouldn't go over too well. And then the contemporary church. Our first responsibility is to our own family. To make sure that our family, who God has put immediately under our care, are are provided for. And then, beyond, into the community, into the world, into the culture. David Chilton correctly observes, If in the name of love for the poor, I transgress God's law by supporting legal plunder of my rich neighbor to fund a poverty program... I am not really loving regardless of my profession, for love is always concerned to fulfill the law of God, end quote. Now you might say, well, they should be giving, they should, shouldn't have that much money. Well, first, who are you to say that? I don't say this as a rich person, by the way. I get given most of my clothes, my car, and everything else. But I am concerned for the freedom and liberty of all people in terms of the law of God. Now, Somebody may have more money than me, and maybe I think they should be more generous with it, but that's up to them and God. They're going to be accountable to to God for how they have used their wealth. And they'll be judged accordingly. By what moral principle does the state, in its welfare programs, take from one person and give it to another? So if, for example, I say... Jennifer here, my my associate, has got way more money than me, which is absolutely true. And and I think, oh, her purse is out on the table there. You know, I'll just take $50. She's not going to miss it. What would you think of me if I took money out of her bag? What would you call me? A thief. If the state does it, we say it's justice. So by what trick of logic do we move from the moral principle there of theft to an institution doing it for us, and then it's called justice? If it is a principle of justice, then what prevents stealing, period, on this notion? 
You see, without obedience to God's word, man's good intentions result in an endless multiplication of coercive laws to rob people of their God-given liberties. As one contemporary writer has put it, the number of laws given to us in the Torah is limited, 613 by rabbinic reckoning, fewer by Christian counts. These laws are mainly enforceable by God, not by man. Those that can be enforced by man are, for the most part, placed in the hands of the family, the specifically religious agency, or the state. They do not empower any institution or agency to control man and life. The primary solution to problems is not by means of coercion, revolution, or punishment, but by means of regeneration. Force is not abolished because it is indeed it is needed in a fallen world, but it is limited. A culture that relies on force to maintain itself is already in the process of decay and dissolution. A civilization is constructed on the premises of religious faith, and when it wanes, the faith wanes. And it wanes when the faith wanes. When men play God, they are unable to regenerate any man. They cannot by their fiat will make of any man a new creation. They must rather rely on compulsion, from compulsory education to strict controls on every man. The state seeks to recreate man by means of coercion. George Orwell in the novel 1984 saw the end of the state's power as the naked exhibition of total power, a boot stamping on a human face forever. In other words, we cannot justify covetousness and theft and coercion even in the name of poverty relief. It's still tyranny. Now, to conclude, social financing has to be provided. What we've said does not mean that social financing is not required. It is required. How is it to be required? Through state-sanctioned theft, progressive taxation, windfall taxes, inheritance taxes at 40% in England? The state's saying, well, we're the elder brother. We're going to take 40% of your estate. Property taxes, where people's wealth is plundered in the name of redistributive welfareism. Did you know that over 50% of the provincial budget goes on salaries and benefits? All this does is create a culture of envy and civil war. We are commanded instead by Christ to give freely and to the needy without display and without hypocrisy. There is no indication in Scripture that charity is participation in sin or that it ever eliminates just, or that justice ever eliminates the need for generosity and charity, because the goal of the kingdom of God is not equalization. The Decalogue prohibits all forms of theft and covetousness, which presupposes private property. Think about it. Two of the commandments concern not stealing and not coveting. Well, that presupposes private property and a proper use of it. What is required is that we tithe. And the tithes in Scripture add up to about 15% of a person's annual income, 1% of which went to the priest for the sanctuary. The rest went for education, teaching, and various forms of social provision. And this is how the Christian church did it for most of our history. State welfare is a new idea. And the reason your taxes keep growing is because more state welfareism is required. So the tax burden continuously moves up, 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 and up. Charitable giving to charities goes down, 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 and down. This is a predictable pattern that's there in our culture. And the inefficiency of the state means that it costs more and more and more to provide these services. George Grant summarized the biblical calling this way. Listen closely. The reason scripture is so specific about the implementation of charity is precisely due to the unique interrelationship of law and love. Biblical love is not naive, guilt-provoked sentiment. Biblical love is not a feeling. Biblical love is the compulsion to do things God's way, living in obedience to his unchanging, unerring purposes. Biblical law is the encoded mercy, grace, and peace of God. It is love standard. Thus, biblical law does not lock us into heartless, soulless exercises of social control. Love and law are inseparable. Working in tandem to the glory of Christ 
and his kingdom. And when they are evidenced as such, the needs of the poor will be met by faithful adherence of authentic Christianity in word and in deed. The alternative to Christ's atonement and Christ's salvation is the masochism of social salvation, a social atonement provided by guilt payments and welfareism that steadily destroys a society. Coercion and equalization replace the kingdom of God. When we think about justice, when we talk about justice, let's be absolutely sure to make certain that it's centered on the word of God, restitution, the rule of law, and generosity through charitable welfare through the tithe. That's the church's mandate. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.